Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. The Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is a program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with parents with visual impairments. The topics presented tonight should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. We are really fortunate to have Dr. Bill Takeshva, who is the Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted, um, offering this program tonight, and we look forward to a great lecture. So thanks so much, Dr. Bill. Oh, thank you very much, Sue, and I want to thank all of you for attending this evening. Uh, it's really so great that we could always have so many people listening to these lectures and also that there's new people who are always here learning more. I also want to give special thanks to Mr. Joe Yurka and Airs LA. Airs LA is probably the largest source of free audio podcasts that are related to vision impairment. So this podcast will be up probably later this week at www.airsla. That's A-I-R-S-L-A.org. Airsla.org. And also at the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org. So this evening, we're going to talk about vision stimulation for amblyopia and other causes of children's vision impairment. Now, amblyopia is a term that many doctors will use to diagnose a child whose vision is not maximal due to the lack of stimulation to the brain. When we think and we study how does vision take place in humans, we know that it does not only involve the eyes, but it also involves many regions of the brain. And as a matter of fact, two-thirds of the brain is involved in the process of vision. So for many children, they may be born with completely healthy eyes, but because there is a problem in the way that the information reaches the brain, the brain is not able to process that information normally. So examples of different types of eye problems that can affect the way that the brain receives the information are, number one, glasses. A child who is born may have the need for glasses to correct for nearsightedness, farsightedness, or astigmatism. And because most children who are born do not ever have an eye examination that measures them for glasses until they're usually the age of five or six years of age, there's many, many children who have never been fit with glasses during the first five years of their life. If a child needs glasses but doesn't have glasses, the information that is sent from the eyes to the brain, it is a weak signal, so to speak. And if the brain doesn't receive the maximum signals, those brain cells do not grow and develop. And for these children, they will have blurred vision. When these kids eventually are diagnosed with a need for glasses and are fit with glasses, it's very surprising that when you put glasses on these kids and you measure their vision, their vision is still very poor. 
in most cases, they are still legally blind in each eye. And the reason for this is that the glasses are not stimulating the visual centers of the brain, but they're only focusing the light rays on the back of the eye. And it will take time to improve the vision of the child. But it is definitely possible to improve the vision of those children who have blurred vision because they did not get glasses. For many of these kids, another cause of their reduced vision might be because they have a crossed or a misaligned eye, and that is called strabismus. So when a child has one eye that is not pointing in the correct direction, the brain sees double vision, and the brain does not like that. So what the brain does is it shuts off the vision of one eye, and this eliminates the double vision. However, when the brain is shutting off part of the crossed or the turned eye, the brain does not receive the maximum amount of stimulation to the brain cells, and those brain cells also do not grow. So these kids may later have their eyes checked by the school nurse at a vision screening when they're able to talk, and everyone finds out that the child has blurred vision in one eye. And when the child has blurred vision in that eye, sometimes they may even call it lazy eye. But in essence, what this child has is a situation in which the brain did not receive maximum stimulation because of the fact that the one eye was not aligned properly. So for these kids, we will recommend a visual stimulation program where we will patch the better eye to force the weaker eye to send information to the brain. And by sending more information to the brain, those brain cells in the back of the brain, they do develop, and these kids can also develop higher levels of vision. So in these two cases where we talked about, number one, the child who needed glasses, and number two, the child who had a crossed or misaligned eye, both of these cases are where children may be very, very low vision to the point that they may be even legally blind. But when we do implement treatment at an earlier age, the sooner that we can, the prognosis is quite good that we could improve vision. And if we do see the child before the age of three, three years of age, and we identify the problem and implement the visual stimulation, most of those kids who have amblyopia, they can achieve vision that's going to be near normal, if not normal. Now, another category that we should think about as being a form of amblyopia include eye diseases as well as cortical vision impairment. Now, cortical vision impairment, it is the leading cause of legal blindness among children that we see at the Center for the Partially Sighted. And cortical vision impairment, it is a condition in which the eyes are perfectly healthy, but the visual centers of the brain do not function normally, usually because of the lack of oxygen, 
It could be because that there was a hemorrhage in the brain at birth, and the brain did not receive enough blood, which subsequently affected the amount of oxygen. It could also be because a child suffered from a seizure disorder, or it may also be a situation where there was trauma. So there are some kids who suffer from shaken baby syndrome. Now, when a child has this kind of damage to the back of the brain called the occipital lobe of the brain in the very back of the head there, these kids will not see normally, and they usually will have very reduced central vision. They have very blurred visual acuity. They may have a large blind spot in their central vision. And we may find that these children do not look at stationary objects. But if an object is moving and presented in the peripheral vision, the child will look at it. So when the child has cortical vision impairment, the rationale behind the treatment is, can we do something to try and to stimulate those brain cells in the center that have not been maximally stimulated? And what we know is that from the work of Christine Roman, that children who do suffer from cortical vision impairment, they do respond favorably to a visual stimulation program, and within an average of three and a half to four years, these children will develop near-normal vision regardless of the age from which you provide the treatment. Now, this is something that is new to me because I have found that the children with cortical vision impairment, they do get much better when we begin the treatment at an early age, and we're talking about the first five years of life. But in Dr. Roman's study, she found that you could begin this type of treatment even among older children who are 10, 11, 12, and 13, and their vision still improves. So considering the fact that cortical vision impairment is one of the leading causes of vision impairment among children today. Vision stimulation is extremely important because we now have some evidence that vision stimulation can help children of all ages. And this is something that's very, very important. Now, we also find there's a fourth category. We've already talked about the child who only needs glasses, and number two, we talked about the child who has a misaligned eye. And number three, we talked about the children who have suffered from the lack of oxygen to the brain. They may benefit from this type of visual stimulation. But there's a fourth category that it doesn't quite exactly fit into amblyopia. But if we look at the principles of vision and how vision takes place, this particular form of vision stimulation can also be helpful for children who have eye disease, such as those children who may have a cataract or a retinal detachment or damage to the optic nerve. Now, when a child has these kinds of eye diseases, many times doctors will say there is no treatment that's available 
to treat these particular types of problems. In other words, your child has a retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa or Stargardt's disease, and we don't have a medication or a surgery that can improve those damaged cells of the retina. Or the doctor might say, your child has optic nerve damage, or the optic nerve didn't grow fully in size, and as a result, the vision is blurred, but there is nothing that we could do surgically or medically to help the child. Well, this is true that in the medical model, there is nothing that can be done to try and to restore or to improve the vision of those particular type of children with the use of surgery or medicine. But if we think about the fact that these children who do suffer from these types of eye diseases, they do not send the maximal amount of electrical impulses to the visual areas of the brain because of the damage to the eye. And so as a result, a child who has been born with an eye disease, they are not able to send the maximum stimulation to the brain. So if we were to then study the visual cortex of the brain, we would find that those cells in the visual cortex of the brain probably are not as mature and they're not as large as the cells in the brain of a child who had perfectly healthy eyes. And the reason for that is because the diseased eye that has that kind of eye disease, it cannot send those signals to the brain normally. So the question is, what would happen, though, if a child does have an eye disease and we were to provide vision stimulation where there will be a forceful amount of electrical signals sent back to the brain, is this something that can improve the vision of these children who have these eye diseases? And at the Center for the Parsi Society, we've been doing this for over 25 years, and the answer to that is yes. Yes. We find that there are many children who are low vision, or they may even be legally blind. And when we measure their vision at the age of three months or six months or even at one year, and we recommend the visual stimulation program, we find and we could measure that these children's vision has improved. Now, we might then ask, well, why has the vision of these children improved? Does this child no longer have diseases to the retina? And the answer is, no, they still have these diseases to the retina, or they still have disease to the optic nerve. But what was happening, and what has happened, is that the visual stimulation, it has helped those brain cells in the visual cortex of the brain to grow. And when these brain cells grow, and make more connections with other brain cells in the visual cortex, the child is able to see better. They're able to see smaller numbers and letters on the eye chart, or they're able to see a wider area of peripheral vision, or 
they're able to see colors and low contrast to a larger degree. So the whole principle behind helping children who have any of these types of vision problems is we want to try to maximally stimulate the brain. We want to try to do anything that we can so that the eye is going to send more signals to the brain so that those brain cells will become stimulated and those brain cells will develop higher vision. Another thing that I want you to think about is just the opposite. Think about the opposite. What if we had these children and we were to blindfold these children and we said, these children don't see well, so let's just forget about their vision. Let's blindfold these children so that these children won't try to use that low level of vision. We want them to learn to use their fingers. We want them to learn to use their hearing. We want them to learn to use their sense of touch. And if we then later studied and performed a scan of the brain of these kids, what we would find is that within a period of a year, the brain cells in the visual centers of the brain would be very, very small. They would have shrunken in size. And for people who have lost vision completely, people such as myself, for any of you who don't know this, I am an eye doctor, but I became totally blind in 2009. But if we were to then look at the brain cells in the visual cortex of my brain, those brain cells would be smaller because of the fact that I have not used those brain cells to see over the last six years. So we know that the use of vision is going to be something that affects the growth or the death of those brain cells in the occipital lobe of the brain. So this is why we say as eye doctors, even though we may not be able to do surgery or give you a medication, we do know what kinds of things can be performed to stimulate the growth of those brain cells in the visual cortex of the brain, which will result in maximal vision. And that's what we need to do with the children. And we know that the sooner that we do it in the life of the child, the better the prognosis. So what we say, the first step in helping any child that you know has a vision disorder is, number one, these children must receive comprehensive eye examinations. The first examination really should be by an ophthalmologist who specializes in children. We want to find out, is there actually anything wrong with the tissues of the eye? And is there any kind of medical or surgical treatment that this child needs to enable vision to develop? In some cases, it may not necessarily be that there's a problem with the eye, but it could be that there's a metabolic problem. It could be that there's a hormonal problem. It could be that there's a brain problem. There's many other types of problems that a child may have which can affect the function of the eye. 
So, for example, if a child has a problem such that the child is not able to process certain vitamins properly, this child may then experience severe vision impairment because the retina doesn't have the vitamin A that it needs to convert the light energy into electrical signals to be sent to the brain. And for these kids, it can be that having the proper medical treatment, it will improve their vision. In other cases, it may be that a child doesn't see well because they have a cataract, or maybe they have a tumor on the retina itself. And for these kids, surgery is something that could be performed to improve the vision immediately. Now, after a child has been evaluated by the ophthalmologist, the child should then be examined by a pediatric low-vision optometrist or a pediatric low-vision ophthalmologist. Now, these doctors are more difficult to find because there just aren't as many doctors who have this specialty. But these are the doctors who could do so much for the child And it's very, very important that parents understand that the examination performed by the low vision doctor is very different than the ophthalmology examination. The ophthalmological examination performed by the ophthalmologist is really to look and inspect the tissues of the eye. So it may be that the doctor will spend five to ten minutes examining the tissues of the child's eyes. Whereas the low vision optometrist will spend one hour to one and one half hours examining the function of the child's vision. Can the child see in the center of his or her vision? Does the child see in the periphery? Does the child have the ability to see colors? Can the child see better under bright light or under dim illumination? Does the child suffer from double vision? Are there problems with the alignment of the eyes? Can the child move both eyes at the same direction? The low vision doctor will look at all of these different areas of vision, and the doctor will be able to tell you how is the child's vision developing, Maybe the doctor will say, your child's vision is at a level of a two-month-old. And this other child, he could say, well, this child's vision is at the level of a six-month-old. And these doctors know at what age children should be having certain levels of vision. And by monitoring and recording what level of vision that the child has, the doctor then knows what level of treatment to implement. So, for example, at birth, a child is usually only able to focus at a distance of 8 to 16 inches away, and the child only sees black and white. So during this particular period, if that is the child's level of vision, we're going to recommend that the parents and the teachers for the visually impaired are going to perform all of the visual stimulation at a distance of 8 to 16 inches. We don't want to decorate things on the wall that are 5 or 10 feet away 
because a child is not able to focus at that distance at that age. We want to use black and white patterns, and we don't want to use colors because at that stage of the child's life, the vision and the brain is not ready to look at those types of colors. And at that stage of life, we as low vision doctors may then prescribe glasses to focus the child's eyes more intensely at a distance of 8 to 16 inches. And we may incorporate magnification in the glasses to make things look bigger so that the child will then look at these targets. And when the child is looking at these black and white patterns from 8 to 16 inches, this will then stimulate those cells of the brain. We'll have the family come back two to three months later, and we expect to see that the child could focus at a different distance, maybe at 24 or 36 inches, or that the child is now beginning to look at faces, or the child is looking at different colored objects. So by understanding at what age a child should be able to see certain things, the doctor then knows how to prescribe vision activities for you. Now, what are some of these types of vision activities that the low vision doctor will prescribe? In most cases, all of these vision activities are very, very basic and they're very affordable. In other words, parents don't have to go out and invest thousands of dollars on very sophisticated equipment. Anything that you have at home will work. But what's important is that the parents will be ex explained how to perform the vision stimulation. And here are the factors that we want to consider for the child when we're doing the vision stimulation. Number one, does the child need glasses to help the child to focus on objects? Does a child need to wear glasses? The doctors may prescribe vision stimulation glasses just to help to stimulate the development of vision. Number two, what is the level of lighting that is going to be best for this child? For some children with certain conditions, working in a dim room is going to be more effective than working in a very bright room. And then for other kids, they may need the room to be much brighter, and we may have to use auxiliary lighting. The doctor will tell you what type of lighting should be used. We often will recommend the use of LED bulbs. And these LED bulbs are very good because of many reasons. Number one, they don't get real hot. And because these bulbs don't get too hot, we don't have to be as concerned that the child will burn his or herself if they accidentally touch the bulb. Number two is that these LED bulbs are also available in different colors. And when we mean colors, a lot of times that is defined as a temperature of the bulb. So some of these bulbs might be what's called 2800 Kelvin. Others might be at 3500 Kelvin. Others might be at 4,800 Kelvin. But for most children, 
if they have a retinal type of eye disease, if they have a retinal eye disease such as Leber's congenital amaurosis, Stargardt's maculopathy, retinitis pigmentosa, any retinal problem, we should make certain that the light bulb has a temperature that is less than 5,000 degrees Kelvin. The reason for this is that some of these light bulbs that have a temperature that is more than 5,000 degrees, there's too much blue light. Or if you turn on these lights, you, you'll notice that these lights appear to be white but with a bluish tint. And we now know that the blue wavelengths of light or blue light is something that is dangerous to the retina. So for this reason, we don't want to use some of these types of lights that might be readily available. So for example, one of the types of light that was very, very popular is called the OT lamp. And the OT lamp is a temperature that is above 5,000 degrees. Now, even though it works very, very well for many adults, it is still something that wouldn't be recommended for children during that type of visual stimulation. So your eye doctor is going to tell you whether the child needs glasses. Number two, what temperature colored light to get, and they could also order that type of light for you. One of the companies that we like to order from is in Northern California, and it's called uh, Berryessa, B-E-R-R-Y-E-S-S-A. Uh, Mr. Mike Jew is the owner of that company, and they do a really good job of making a very high-quality product that works very, very well. The third thing we then want to find out is, after glasses, the lighting, is what distance is the best distance to present all of these visual patterns. You know, if you have a child who's very, very young, two-month-old, three-month-old, on a visual developmental level, and we show them movies on a 70-inch television from 20 feet away, most likely that child will not look at that television. It's because of the fact that for children of a young age, they are not interested in looking at things that are that far. It's almost as though, why is it that you and I, we usually just don't look at the sky and look at stars all the time. We tend to look at things that are closer. So number three, we want to look and know what distance to present the information. Number four, what direction do we present it? Do we put it right in front of the child's center of sight or do we begin by presenting it on the left side or the right side or the upper or the lower visual field? This is especially important when there are children who have reduced peripheral vision. Some children may not have any peripheral vision on the right side. And for these kids, they may neglect or ignore everything on the right side. So for these children, we're going to recommend specific activities where we're going to present all of these toys and visual stimuli from that blind side to encourage a child to become aware of that blind side. The same thing is that if a child is not able to see 
anything on the right side, we want you to talk to the child from the right. When you feed the child, feed the child from the right. When you sit in the car with the child, position the child such that somebody is on the right side of the child. Next, we want to find out what color stimuli should we use for the children. Depending on their eye diagnosis and the tests that the doctor performs, we know what kinds of visual stimuli should be used. For example, there's many kids who have cortical vision impairment that we talked about, and they like to look at things that are black and white or red and white. And as time proceeds, we then find that they start to become more aware of other colors. There's other children who may have specific retinal diseases. And if a child has a specific type of disease, there are some colors that the child just will not be able to see very well. So we shouldn't use those colors because they don't see those colors easily and they're not interesting. We also want to find out next, how does a child respond to stationary objects versus moving objects? Many kids, again, will be much more interested if we have something that is moving. So you could use different types of toys. Maybe you have a gym set. These are the gym sets that sit on the floor and a ball or other things, they swing from left to right. Some kids love that. You could put a child in front of an aquarium. They may love it. You could use the iPad and turn on some of these applications where there's things that are constantly moving, and they will love it. And if the child does respond very well to objects that are moving, those are the kinds of visual stimulation toys that we use. Your laptop computer, we could just program a screensaver. So you have all of these things moving around the screen, and it will stimulate the visual centers of the brain. We could do the same thing with even a small cell phone. The small cell phones are such that we could have moving patterns, and that will stimulate the development of vision. In other cases, the doctor will recommend one eye being patched. And this will be the case if we do find that in one eye, the child sees more poorly in one eye versus the other. We don't have to go through things where we use a very uncomfortable or a very thick patch. Many times we could simply put a very comfortable pair of glasses on the child, use frosted scotch tape, and that will be very effective. The child will then use the weaker eye. That stimulates the brain, and the child will develop more vision. Now, as you're going through these different kinds of activities that the doctor recommends, you should be followed by the doctor every three months. And at that three-month follow-up visit, the doctor will then modify the activities that you're going to perform. They're going to tell you, let's change the distance. Let's change the color. Let's now incorporate the use of the child's hands to reach and to touch. When we begin to incorporate reaching and touching, you know, the iPad and these tablet PCs have been very, 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 very effective. One of the things is that uh, Sue 
Strafasi and uh, Tori Sladen and uh, so many other people here in Southern California, they have developed what's called the Cortical Vision Impairment Consortium. Now, they have developed a great packet of activities, applications, games, toys, things of all prices, and these are specifically designed to work with children with cortical vision impairment. Now, these activities, even though that we have written that they're for children with cortical vision impairment, they could help any child who has amblyopia. So if the child has reduced vision because they weren't fit with glasses, we could use these exercises. If a child has strabismus, which caused the amblyopia, we could use these same exercises. So if that is something that you're interested in, receiving a copy of these handouts and this uh, manuscript regarding the visual stimulation, uh, you could contact uh, Sue what would be the best way? Would that be to the consortium, or would that just be a email that they could send to you or myself or Tori, and we could help get mm-hmm. them that information? Yeah, I think probably the best way to get the information at this point would just be send it to direct uh, just direct email to one of us. Uh, my email is s strafasi. That's s t r a s as in Frank a c i at BrailleInstitute.org, and I'm a member of the CVI, and the Greater uh, Southern California CVI Consortium, along with um, um, Tori from the Family Resource Project, and Diana Dennis from TLC, and Laura Campagna from Junior Blind, and Yolanda Moreno. And the list goes on and on. <laughs> like I said, you'll find out all that, all those people when you get the packet. Um, we have a great group um, that would. And we could certainly get that pack. We could certainly email you that packet uh, from my email, your email, Dr. Bill, or Dr. or from Tori as well. Yes, thank you. And and if you want to uh, email myself, uh, you could email me at uh, Dr. Bill Foundation, and that's D R B I L L F O U N D A T I O N, Dr. Bill Foundation at gmail dot com, and. Uh, uh, later, uh, Tori, uh, would you like to share your email address too? Sure, Dr. Bell. Um, my email is my first name, so it's Tori, T-O-R-I, and and then the letter S as in Sam, at low, L-O-W, dash vision dot O-R-G. And if you send me your email um, address, obviously, or send me an email, I'd be happy to attach uh, the handouts as well. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, so the entire group of, of uh, members of the CVI Consortium has really put a lot of work into this, and they have done a great job in putting together step-by-step activities. I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of activities, and depending if the child has the lowest level of vision or moderate vision, or high levels of vision, there are specific activities to work on the development of vision. So this could be for amblyopia, cortical vision impairment, or with low vision. So all of these types of things are equally very, very effective. So the main points that I want to get across is, number one, to 
help the child who does have reduced vision. We want to make certain that they have a proper diagnosis. And this way we can be certain that they receive the medical attention that they need to maximize the development of vision. Next, they need to have a low vision examination. And the low vision eye doctor will share with the family the specific activities that they need to do, and they will also share with the teacher of the visually impaired the activities that need to be performed. But we want to emphasize that in order for the child's vision to get better, the parents and the family really have to be involved. We see many times that parents ask the teachers to do that, but the child is going to be spending much of its waking hours at home or with the family. And if we could modify the home so that the home has the appropriate lighting, the appropriate colors, the appropriate toys, and we could position these toys and vision stimuli at the correct distance, the child could get visual stimulation when the child's in the bathtub, when the child is eating, when the child is sitting with the family in the car going to school. Every one of these everyday routine activities can be converted into a visual stimulating activity. And it doesn't mean that mom or dad has to really be actively involved at that time. Let's say that you're sitting in the car and you're driving the child to preschool. Well, one of the things that you could simply do is you could use a very high contrast. Maybe it's going to be a red and white checkerboard tablecloth, and you're going to put that on the back seat so the child who is looking towards the back seat will see that particular type of pattern. Or other parents, they might tie a small toy. It could be a red and white pattern ball, and that ball is going to be hanging so that it dangles in front of the child's eyes while the child's in the car seat. There's many things that you can do to make it very, very stimulating, and that will help the child to develop more vision. So by doing these kinds of activities, you will maximize the chances of your child developing more vision. And we know that, again, within an average of three and a half to four years, we will see the greatest level of vision improvement. Now, this does not mean, though, this does not mean that these kinds of activities can cure blindness. For a person such as myself, whose retina, my retina is dead. The cells on my retina, they don't work anymore. I could do as many of these exercises to try to stimulate my vision, but because the cells themselves do not work, then these types of activities will not be beneficial. On the other hand, with young children today, I strongly recommend we do these kinds of activities if the child has any level of vision because these activities will stimulate the development of the brain cells. And we need to stimulate the development of the brain cells at this young age. If we wait too long, those brain cells will not develop. And with the way that research is coming along, if the child happens to have 
a retina problem or an optic nerve problem, there's a very good chance that your child will benefit from some of these treatments. And when these treatments are then incorporated and introduced for that child, those brain cells will be ready to receive that kind of visual stimulation. And their vision will respond much more favorably as compared to if we never did that kind of vision stimulation. For example, one of the things that I'm really, really, really waiting for, I wish they could do it even faster, but it is the stem cells. And the stem cells, this is a treatment that I'm waiting for for myself personally, that we would be able to inject stem cells into my eye, and these stem cells will develop new retinal cells for me. When I develop new retinal cells in my eye, they will send the signals to the optic nerve, and my optic nerve is healthy, and that will be sent to my brain, and my brain cells are still working, and I will be able to see. It may not be perfect, but I am very confident that there will be a time that I will have vision again. So it is a very, very exciting time. And if we keep these principles in mind, we can help out the children. So let's go ahead and uh, let's open it up to any questions that you may have for uh, Sue or myself or others in the audience. So if you press star six, and that will unmute your phone, and you could introduce your name and ask your question. Okay, star six. Does anybody have any questions? Hi, Dr. Bill. This is Nancy. I have several um, things that I would like you to address, if you're able to. Did you ask uh, what are the alternatives to the Band-Aid style patch? Yes. Well, there's many different reasons, again, that the doctors may perform patching. Uh, in some cases, the doctors may perform patching because the child is suffering from double vision. Other times, a child may be suffering from eye pain, so they patch the eye. And other times, the patching is performed for the visual stimulation. Now, Many doctors will use a bandage type of patch. It's like a Band-Aid, and you stick that on the child's eye. I personally don't recommend that particular style of patching unless we have to do that. And the reason for that is, for many children, it's not comfortable to have a Band-Aid patch on their eye. Number two, when you remove a Band-Aid patch, it often hurts. And number three... When you're using a Band-Aid style patch, the eye and the brain are not receiving any kind of visual stimulation at that point whatsoever. So we like to recommend the alternative of using a pair of glasses, and we could then patch one eye by just putting frosted scotch tape over the lens. That is usually one of the easiest and most effective ways. Now, there might be situations where maybe a child doesn't cooperate and a child will pull off the glasses constantly. In those situations, we will then use an elastic strap around the back of the glasses 
which often will keep the glasses on more easily. Some people will even put a restraint that doesn't allow the child to bend the elbow, but we prefer not to restrain the child. But we really want to really try to work and engage a child's attention by playing with a child and doing things that the child is thinking about the activity you're doing so much that the child is not thinking about the glasses. Another alternative, there are some situations if the child always pulls the glasses off, what we will then do is we will resort to using an eye drop that is called atropine, A-T-R-O-P-I-N-E. And what atropine does is it dilates the pupil of the eye and it also affects the child's ability to focus with the focusing eye muscle. So when we put atropine in the eye, it will essentially blur the vision of that eye, and then it will then result in the child using the other eye that we didn't put the atropine in. So we may use atropine in one eye if we're trying to get the child to use the other eye. So those are the most common types of uh, alternatives that we use for patching. Okay, and uh, Nancy, do you have another question, or does anybody else have any other questions? Dr. Bell, this is Judy. I'd like to know if you have any um, exercises or whatever, I should say, visual stimulation activities for students with double vision that is not caused by a muscular reason, it's neurological? Okay, yeah, the question is, how can you help children who have double vision due to neurological reasons? And the first thing is that we would need to identify what kind of double vision is this child having? Uh, The first step is to determine Does the child see double vision only with one eye? In other words, if we cover one, if we covered one eye and do our test and find the child has seen double vision with that one eye, that is something that we may have to use a specialized type of prism lens. Or it may be that this child may require surgery. One of the more common causes of double vision in one eye is that the internal lens of the eye is slightly displaced. Mm. Now, if the child is seeing double vision only when there are two eyes open, this can, as you stated, be either a muscular problem or a muscle doesn't move properly, or it could be a neuromuscular problem where the brain isn't sending the right signals to those eye muscles at that point in time. In that particular case, if it is neurological, we want to measure the alignment of the child's eyes very carefully because if the child is seeing double vision only when two eyes are open, there's a very, very, very strong probability that the alignment of the eyes is not exact. You may look at this child and you may notice that the eyes look perfectly straight, but they may be off by one degree, and that's enough to cause a child to see double vision. So there's two things that could be done. Once we identify 
how the eyes are misaligned, we then, A, we could recommend that the child is going to use a prism that's put in glasses, which will eliminate the double vision at that immediate time. But then we also want to then recommend that we try doing exercises to teach the brain to send the proper signals to the muscles. So if we identify that the child's eyes are actually pointing outward just slightly, we want to do exercises that will encourage the child to cross the eyes. If we have a different situation where the eyes are actually crossing by a slight degree, we may then prescribe glasses that will encourage the eye muscles to relax, and that will then straighten the alignment of the eye. So we need to get the diagnosis of what is the visual problem that is causing that kind of double vision, and then we can recommend those exercises. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's see, is there another question out there? Did I hear somebody has another question? I do. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. Yes. The question is, uh, Chester is in Fresno, and he's a teacher of the visually impaired, and he works with many children who have cortical vision impairment, and the parents are Spanish-speaking only. And the materials we have at our uh, CBI consortium we are in the process of translating it all into Spanish. So we do have a, a person on, on our group. Her name is Yolanda Moreno, and she is with Multiple Disabilities Incorporated, where they do provide treatment for children with cortical vision impairment. And we, uh, we can get you in contact with her and see how far along we are with the translation. Uh, Sue, do you know how far along she might be with the translation? I know we had a discussion about it. I don't know how far along we are at this point, but I think um, you know it's definitely in process, and hopefully it will be done soon. If you send us an email, we can kind of give you an update, Chester. That might be the best way to do it. We can kind of get back with you that way. Um, in addition to that, I, I do know there, you know, there are some web, there are some additional resources uh, that you probably be available in Spanish through uh, www.familyconnect.org. I know they do have some information there in Spanish on their website on cortical visual impairment, and also uh, the Blind Babies Fact Sheets also has a resource for cortical visual impairment that I believe is done in Spanish as well. So um, if you just start to, to Google um, Blind Babies Foundation fact sheets, I know they'll come up, and that would be another resource, immediate resource for you. But we could certainly, um, you, just, you just send us an email, we can send you some whatever we have currently, and then as soon as our packet is translated, we'll get that to you. Let's see, we have time for one more question. Does anybody else have a question? I have another question, Dr. Bill. Yes, please. Go right ahead. Thank you. So for a child who will go to sleep when patched or just cry and is unable to be consoled, 
How does a parent get over that hump? Yeah, that's a really uh, a good question. It's a very challenging situation. What I would recommend in that case is that if a child is falling asleep uh, when patched, I would actually resort to using the eye drops, the atropine eye drop. And that would probably be something that would be uh, less invasive in the sense that the child may not know what we're really doing, and that would help to stimulate the use of the vision. So the atropine eye drop would be something that you might discuss with the eye doctor. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. Well, again, <laughs> uh, I want to thank all of you for being on the call this evening. I'd especially like to thank Mr. Joe Yurka from Airs LA, www.airsla.org, uh, for recording this. This will also be up at the BrailleInstitute.org webpage, and I also want to thank uh, Sue Strafasi from Braille Institute for putting this on, and I also want to personally just wish all of you uh, a very happy holiday season. So, Sue, what are we going to be talking about next month? Okay, we've got, well, this is a good segue because next month we'll be talking about our, our cortical vision impairment and providing maybe a little update on the consortium as well as um, just any new current information you have for us, Dr. Bill, so that, that will be exciting. Okay, great, great. Okay, so we'll, we'll see all of you next month, and we'll talk more about cortical vision impairment.